George MacDonald. Some of you have heard of him. He was a 19th century Scottish minister, well known for his stories and fables and parables. He used a parable to describe the process of sanctification in the life of Christians. He, let me just define sanctification for you. It's, it's, it's known as the growth in holiness that inevitably follows genuine conversion. Growth in holiness. Growth in being more and more and more progressively like Jesus Christ. It's the process by which God brings us into conformity with His Son. And as every Christian here tonight can testify, sanctification is slow. It's a slow process. It's uneven. It can be messy and sometimes it can be very, very hard. Sometimes genuine Christians may struggle with a particular sin for years in their life, even decades in their life, crying out to God with the heaviness of needless shame. Amen? Maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but uh, I praise God that I can come to the Lord and confess my sin and grace rains down. Amen? Grace rains down. But man, my heart is broken for the heaviness of this needless shame. Amen? But what a gracious God. What a gracious God we have. What a gracious God we have. Sanctification can be, again, a painful and frustrating process. And if we read our Bibles, we understand that this is another area in which we see the, the clear sovereignty of God at work, but we also see the clear call of, 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 of uh, the Christian to cooperate in our own sanctification. So we see God's sovereignty in the work, and we see our responsibility to cooperate with God in sanctification. While the Holy Spirit is doing all the, the heavy lifting, we are called to be holy. We saw it... Um, some weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I'm so thankful that this is a partnership. I'm not left to my own. Beloved, you know you're not left to your own to be holy. God's at work in you. Praise the Lord. He's at work in me. Praise the Lord. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. This is a partnership. It's a partnership. And many of you have discovered this reality for yourself, whether a good day or a bad day, we can rejoice. As Christians, we can, we can rejoice. What do I mean by that? On a good day, when I find more obedience in my life than I find disobedience, when I find more love for God in my life than I find love for myself, when I find more of that stranger in exile mentality as opposed to loving the world. On a day like that, I rejoice in who I am becoming in Christ Jesus. Amen? And I know I didn't do it. I know God's doing it in me. But I can see that I am cooperating with the work of sanctification. And it's a great joy. I can see the reality of God in my life. I can feel His hand on me. I can feel the absolute pleasure of submitting to His sovereign will in my life. 
I can recognize that I am being changed. Beloved, if you, if you don't see this going on in your life, you need to get in a quiet place and do some business with God. You need to be, the, you need to be able to see the change going on in your life. You need to be able to see the sanctification that God is working in and that you are called to work out. Amen? God works it in and you and I are called to work it out on a not-so-good day when there's more disobedience than obedience and when there's more love for self than there is love for God and when the sin within me rears its ugly head and nobody else in the whole wide world can tell I'm a Christian. God knows I'm a Christian. On my worst day, God knows that I am His. And I can still rejoice because I can come before, as 1 John says, I can come before my Advocate and I can confess my sin. And He, is, he hears us. And He's righteous and faithful to forgive us our sin through His finished work on the cross. So not only can I rejoice in a gracious, merciful, loving, compassionate, forgiving God, I can also rejoice even on that bad day when I see more disobedience than I see obedience. I can still rejoice in my sanctification. Why? Even when I don't see the sanctification going on on a particular day. Why can I rejoice? Because God's a promise keeper. Philippians 1.6 God says, I will complete, I will perfect, I will finish the good work I've begun in you. So on that hard day, when nobody else can tell I'm a Christian, I can barely tell I'm one. Do you ever have those days? Maybe you don't have those days. <laughs> I have those days. I can rejoice because God is going to complete the work He's begun. It's not up to me. It's not all up to me to complete this. I can't do it, but my God can do it. And my God has promised to do it. Beloved, this is a great promise. This is an awesome, awesome promise. God's hands are always on the Christian. C.S. Lewis says it like this, after the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. God does all the heavy lifting in our spiritual pilgrimage. Which brings me back to George MacDonald. You probably thought I forgot. George MacDonald, his parable about sanctification. He compares the Christian to a living house. Okay, you got the mental picture? You're a living house. And God comes in to, to fix you up, right? And you know that the faucet is leaky. and You know the roof is leaky. You know the gutters need to be repaired. The obvious sin in your life. You know those things need to be addressed. God comes in. And God addresses those things. But what else does God do? George McDonald, this is his parable. God begins to just simply tear down everything. He demolishes everything in your life. He tears down everything. And then He starts throwing up brand new stuff. Right? He starts building brand new things. McDonald says it like this. What on earth is God up to? You thought God was going to come in, clean you up a little, make you into a decent little cottage, but that's not what He's doing at all. He's doing something altogether different. What is God doing? You know, 
Beloved, sanctification is not a refurb. It's not a refurbishing job. What is it? It's a raise and rebuild. Right? You know what the word raise means? It means to demolish and begin from the beginning and rebuild from the ground up. This is sanctification. <laughs> He's not only going to clean the, or, or fix the, the leaky faucet in your life, He's going to take you down to the very foundation. He's going to take you down to the cornerstone. And then He's going to start building an edifice that He will live in. Amen? This is what McDonald's point is. God's going to come live in you. <laughs> He's not going to leave you unholy. God's going to come and live in you. It's not about being a, a decent little cottage. It's about being the temple of God. Beloved, we know the metaphor. We understand what God says in the Scripture. God not only intends for you to live in Him, He intends to live in you. And He will complete the good work He's begun. That's one of the things that I believe God is saying to us here as we begin 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone in this raise and rebuild project called Jim Albright. We've got to get all the Jim Albright out of the way so Jesus can be the cornerstone. And God can rebuild based on Jesus. Not based on Jim, based on Jesus. And so God's going to remove all the garbage over time. It's, it's Especially, my, my, I, have a, I have a really long learning curve. But God's going to do that. Praise God, He's going to do that. I can't do that. I can't make myself holy. I can't make myself holy. There's this great line. You guys seen that, that great movie, uh, Amazing Grace? Uh, it was put out a few years ago. And I think William Pitt is talking to, what's the guy's name? Wilberforce. And he says, we can change England. And do you remember what Wilberforce said? I changed myself first. If you're a Christian, you understand that line. If you're a Christian, you'd understand that line. I would that I could change myself. But I know that God will. As I cooperate with Him in sanctification. It's a raise and rebuild. He is the cornerstone. Everything not in line with the cornerstone, it must be removed. I love that imagery. I love that parable. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, you heard the text read, Therefore, putting aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long, longing for the pure milk of the Word, that it may... Pardon me, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Chapter 2 begins with that all-important word, therefore. We've talked about this before. What's it there for? We need to understand. We could say it's there because of all that's been said in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. But more specifically, it's because of what was said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. You have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Because that's true of you. Because you've been born of the supernatural, omnipotent Word of God. He says, therefore... Live like it. Therefore, put off malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. 
Human beings can't do this. They can't put this stuff off. They can act religious and they can act acceptable and they can put on a, a nice facade, but they cannot put these things off. They cannot get them out of their hearts. Human beings can't do this, but born-again Christians can. <laughs> born-again Christians can. Why? Because God is doing that raise and rebuild project in you. And you are cooperating with the sanctification that God is doing in you. This Greek word here translated putting aside, it literally means to put off or cast off. The imagery is to take off soiled clothing. Take it off. Get rid of it. In the early church, there was this habit. It wasn't universal, but in some places, when someone would, would come to be baptized, they would take his old clothes and they would burn his old clothes. And they, the church would come together and give him the gift of a new robe. It was symbolic of putting off the old heart and walking with God in newness of heart, newness of life. The word picture is to strip off the old filthy clothing and put on a clean one. And we can do that because Jesus is who He is. And Jesus has done what He's done. Ephesians 4.22-24, God says this, Lay aside the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self which is the likeness of God. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases that in the message. He says, get rid of the self-fashioned life. Right? And put on the God-fashioned life. Is that simple enough to remember? Put off the Jim Albright label. Take it off. It's no good. It's last year's fashion. It's no good. Take it off. And put on the Jesus Christ label. That's really the imagery here. That's really the imagery here. Get rid of the self-fashioned life and put on the God-fashioned life. It's what real Christians do. And I want to say to you, beloved, if this is not a reality in your life, you, you most likely have not met Christ yet. This process should be going on in your life. I'm not saying that Christians don't have seasons when we are dull and when we don't grow, and when we are not fighting our sin, and when we are not submitting to the will of God. I'm not saying that. But this should be a process in your life. This should be ongoing in your life. If you're not consciously and proactively expending energy to get rid of the self-fashioned life in favor of the God-fashioned life, most likely you are still playing religion. Most likely. God says put off this self-style. Put off this malice. And I'm just going to tell you what these words mean. You know what they mean. But just to drive the point home. Put off this malice, which literally means evil. Literally means wickedness. But put off this ill will you have towards someone. Put off this desire to injure another. God says put off guile. It means put off deceit and deception and dishonesty and seduction and falsehood. God says put off hypocrisy. Quit being phony. Quit being fake. Quit being two-faced. Quit being disingenuous. God says put off envy. Quit being jealous. Quit being resentful. Stop being greedy. Stop being covetousness. Stop begrudging others what they have. God says put off slander. Stop insulting and maligning and libeling and slurring and disparaging others. God says stop. 
If you've really been born again by, by My Word, chapter 1, verse 23, then put off the old self and put on the new. This is certainly not an exhaustive list of sins that we must deal with in our lives, but they represent the ugliness that quite naturally flows out of our hearts. Our old sin nature, when it rears its ugly head as Paul talks about so vividly in Romans chapter 7, these sins and all others are, are the self-fashioned life. God says they must go. And you need to be working. If any, of these, if any of these sins or any other sins not in the list are in your life, God says they must go. They must go. They must go. This is the Word of the Lord. Look at verse 2. God says we're to be like, oh, newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the Word that by it we might grow in respect to salvation. This takes us back to verse 23 as well. If we are in fact, verse 23 of chapter 1, born again of the imperishable Word of God, the living and abiding, omnipotent Word of God that lasts forever, if we're born again, then long for the Word. Chapter 2, verse 2. If it's real, you'll have this longing for the Word. If you have no longing for the Word, you have every reason to question what's going on in your life. You have every reason to question if God's in your life at all. You may be religious, but that's not Christianity. You guys have heard me say this many, many times. I want to make sure that we understand the dichotomy. If you have a question about that, come talk to me. The dichotomy between man-made religion and born-again Christianity. It's worlds apart. It's a cosmos apart. It's universes apart. And dead religion will get you nowhere. With respect to God. In fact, if we read our Bibles, we understand it makes Him pretty mad. Men who try to come to Him through their religion. God says, I hate it. If you read your Bible, many times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, God says, I hate that. Don't you dare try to come to Me in your own efforts, in your own works. He says, remove it from Me. It's a stench in My nostrils. So beloved, we can only come through Christ. We can only come through Christ. I love this newborn, this imagery here. I love this. this it's, it's quite vivid. A newborn baby, what's he interested in when he's born? What's he interested in? Oh, he wants to know what clothes he has and what, how cool his crib is and, and how many neat, neat toys he has. That's what he wants, right? As soon as he's born, he wants to know all of that. No, what he wants is his mother's milk. That's what he wants. The first thing he wants is his mother's breast. That's what he wants. He wants that milk. Do you get the analogy between a newborn babe and a born-again Christian? Do you see it? <laughs> a Christian wants the Word. You can't keep him out of the Word. I, I mean, this happened to me. I was, I've shared with you before, I was raised in the church, been a church member all my life, was baptized when I was eight, didn't mean anything to me. I wouldn't have given you a nickel for the Bible. But I showed up on Sunday because it was expected and it was a cultural thing. So I did it. But at 28, when the Lord converted me, man, I wanted to know, I wanted to know what He said. I wanted to know what He was saying to me. I wanted to know what He was like. 
That's what it is. That's what it's like for the new believer. I, keen, I keenly remember that. There's a second aspect here to this simile or this analogy. Mother's milk doesn't only give nourishment. What else does it do? Anybody know? It, it gives protection. It gives immunity. It gives antibodies. There's another beautiful simile here of the Word of God. When you eat the Word of God, you're not only being nourished, you're learning how to be protected. You're learning how to guard your heart. You're learning how to walk like a son or a daughter of the King. I love that. And then there's a third aspect to this analogy. I bet if I gave you a few minutes, you could guess. Intimacy. As the baby nurses at its mother's breast, it nurtures intimacy. Beloved, if you're a Christian and you're in the Word of God, you're nurturing intimacy with, with the One who wrote the Word of God. I, love, I just think this is a really powerful, powerful analogy. Nourishment, protection, and intimacy. It's true of a newborn, again, Christian as he comes to the Word. That's why we preach the Bible. That's all we do is we preach the Bible. That's all we do. Why? Because it's your nourishment. Why? Because it's your protection. Why? Because it's your intimacy with God. That's why. God has done something mysterious about the preached Word. I can't explain it, but He says, this is how I want my Gospel proclaimed. He does something mysterious with the preached Word. It's much bigger than who I am or what I have to say. God does something huge through the preached Word. And beloved, that's why it's not negotiable for us to just come at our convenience. I know that most of us sometimes tend to think like that. But we need to come. We need to sit under the Word of God. We need to long for the pure milk of the Word of God so we can be nourished, so we can be strengthened, so we can draw near to this beautiful and awesome God. The newborn Christian must be in the Word as the newborn babe must be at its mother's breast. Why? It's right there in verse 2 that by it we may grow in respect to salvation, that you may grow up. That's really the title of my sermon, Grow Up. That's what, I'm, that's what God challenged me to do as I studied this text. And I suspect He's going to challenge you to do the same thing. Grow up. You claim to be a Christian? Grow up. Grow up. Tonight. I'm challenging you tonight. Grow up. You say, Jim, I don't know how to grow up. You come talk to me. I'll give you a few tips. I'm still working on it myself. But there's a clear path. God gives us a clear path on how to grow up and be men and women of God. This is what we talk about in men's Bible study all the time, man. I always hammer those guys. I say, be a man. Be a man. Be a godly husband. Be a godly father. Be a godly employee. Be a man. Don't be effeminate. Don't be weak. Be a man. Like Jesus. Jesus was a man. Jesus is our prototype. Be a man like Jesus. Full of power, but full of love. Full of love and tenderness and kindness and service. 
Beloved, God expects you to grow up. There's a great book out that some guy in the States wrote. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the book. I can't remember who wrote it. But it's addressed specifically to men. And it's about this. Grow up! Be the man that your wife needs. Be the man your children need. Be like Christ. Be like Christ. Of course, I'm not going to let you women off the hook. Grow up and be a godly woman. Be a godly woman. Be a godly woman for all the world to see. So God has provided the sources of nourishment, protection, and intimacy. It's His Word. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, Man does not live on bread alone, but what does man live on? Someone tell me. By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You must have it if you profess to be a Christian. If you profess to be spiritual. In a biblical sense, you must have the Word of God. This is non-negotiable. You remember God's rebuke in Hebrews 5 to those who would not grow up. They wouldn't grow up. God says, man, by this time you ought to be teachers. You remember? You remember Hebrews chapter 5? If you don't know it, go look at it. He says, man, you should be off milk by now. You ought to be eating solid food. What's wrong with you? Grow up, God says to the Hebrews. He said, man, you're not supposed to be babes. You're supposed to be men and women. He says, you need to leave the elementary principles and press on to maturity. I'm calling you tonight. If you call yourself a Christian, press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. This is non-negotiable with God. Press on. This is non-negotiable with the Lord. God says, be, be what I created and redeemed you to be. Be my son, be my daughter, nourished by the Word, strong in the Word, intimately knowing me. Beloved, this is our license to live our faith as big as we dare. We know the living God. We know Him. He's our Father. We are adopted into the family. I mean, I say this to you a lot, but it's just sad that we live our Christianity about this big when our Father is God. When our Father is God. And I, I get to work, you know, every chance I get, I work this text in. It's that great verse in Daniel 11.32. It's the, like the first verse in my book that will most likely will never be published. But, it's the first sentence. It says, The people that do know their God, they shall be what? They shall be weak and immature and afraid to do anything. Right? Anybody remember what Daniel 11.32 says? The people who do know their God shall be strong and do what? Exploits. I love that verse. Men, you're supposed to do spiritual exploits. Women, you're supposed to do spiritual exploits. That's who you are in Christ. Life is not for the Christian. It's not just getting by, making a living, getting some stuff, and dying well. That's not what it's about. God's given us a much bigger job description than this. And one that will fill your soul with joy if you'll go with Him. You know, we sell out for what the world says is good. You know, we sell out for this little pile of junk, right? We sell out for it. And it brings no joy at all. God says, come go with me. And you'll have my joy. <laughs> Not only in this life, but for a billion eternities. You'll have my joy. 
John 17, my joy. I give you my joy, he says. Capital M-Y. My joy. Go read it. I love that. It just gives me goosebumps when I read that. John 17. My joy. I give you my joy. If you don't have God's joy in your life, beloved, you left off somewhere. You're not walking with Him. You sat down somewhere along the way. Grow up, He says. Grow up. Make my son famous in the world. Grow up. Be my disciple. If, verse 3, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is simply a, a way to say if you've, if you've come to Christ, if you've been born again, if you've been begotten of God, that's simply all that means. If, if you are a Christian, grow up in your sanctification, verse 1. If you're a Christian, grow up in your spiritual maturity, verse 2. Chapter 4 through verse 7a, we see... The Lord says, "In coming to Him, coming to Jesus, as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Me shall... Not be disappointed. What an awesome sentence. Verse 7a, this precious value then is for you who believe. In these first eight verses of chapter 2, Christ is referred to as the living stone, the cornerstone, the rejected stone, and the stumbling stone. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery here. Uh, Isaiah 8.18, Isaiah 28.16, Psalm 118.22, and many, many others. A few weeks ago, you may remember I quoted to you Psalm 18.31. David said, who is a rock like our God, right? And the psalmists were all over this. God is a rock. Our God is a rock. And our God is the rock upon which all creation, time, providence, redemption, judgment, and eternity rest. Jesus is the cornerstone of it all. This is what the Word of God is saying to us. He's not merely the cornerstone of redemption. He's the cornerstone of all things. All things. Let me define what a cornerstone is. I, I heard when Sean read his, his version, it said capstone. But let me, let, me read what a, let me just read you the definition of a cornerstone. It's the first stone set in a masonry foundation. And it's important since all other stones in the foundation and consequently the whole building are set in reference to this stone. You got it? This is why it's a raise and rebuild project. This is why it's not a refurbish. This is why God doesn't come into your life and just put a coat of paint on. That's never going to work. Right? He's taking you down to the ground. And He's going to set that cornerstone which is Christ Jesus and because the whole building is set in reference to this cornerstone, it determines the soundness of the entire structure. <laughs> the soundness of all creation, time, providence, redemption, judgment, and eternity rests in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Jesus is the living stone rejected by men, but precious in the eyes of God. That word precious appears three times in these few verses. Precious in the eyes. Jesus is precious in the eyes of God. He is rare. He is highly prized. But He is ignored and discarded by men and by religion. But look what God says about those who do not reject the living stone. Did you see it there in verse 5? They become living stones themselves and they are built up into a priesthood. Those who do not reject Christ 
become living stones themselves and they become part of the spiritual house of God. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19-22. Just listen, I'll read it slow. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You know you're the temple of God, right? Don't you know this? You've read your Bibles. You know that the people of God are the temple of God. God is the habitation of the people of God. Psalm, 40, uh, Psalm 71 says that our God is a rock of habitation. Our God is a rock of habitation. So God is the habitation of the people of God, and the people of God are the habitation of God. You got it? You got that? You need to get that. You need to understand that. That's part of the imagery here. God is the habitation of the people of God, and the people of God are the habitation of God. How can you not love this? Can you not feel the, the security and the strength and, and the comfort and the power of having God as our habitation? The communion and the intimacy and the safety. Beloved, this is our license to be real Christians. God is our habitation, and we are God's habitation. We are one. Again, John 17, Jesus says it. You know, it's like, it's like one theologian said, and I, I always want to be careful when I say this, but we're not a member of the Trinity. We'll never be a member of the Trinity. But, but one theologian said it like this, this intimacy that Jesus talks about in John 17, he says, it's as if we're the fourth member of the Trinity. That's how huge the intimacy is, beloved. This is the, the relationship that God has called us into. It's an amazing, amazing thing. We are God's priests. I like how the message paraphrases verse 5. Present yourself as building stones for the construction of a sanctuary vibrant with life in which you, you'll serve as holy priests, listen to this, offering Christ-approved lives up to God. That's your, that's your spiritual service of worship, your reasonable service of worship. As Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that you offer up your Christ-approved life to God. Beloved, is this something you're working on? Is this something you're praying about? That you could offer up a Christ-approved Life to God. Our spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God. Verse 1, growing in sanctification. Verse 2, growing in spiritual maturity. Becoming the disciple that we have been called to be. Did you see there in verse 6? Tell me. He who believes in Him shall what? Someone tell me what the text says. He who believes shall... Not be put to shame. Or, some texts say, not be disappointed. I guess so, right? You know, many times with Scripture, it's so understated. I mean, it's so understated. It's not simply that we won't be disappointed. God will fill us up forever, right? For a billion eternities. We'll be ecstatic. But He says, those who believe, they will not be disappointed. We don't have a deceptive hope. 
Our hope is real. Our hope is the cornerstone of all things. Creation, providence, time, redemption, judgment, eternity. Our hope is, is the cornerstone of all things. We will not be disappointed. And quickly, 7b in verse 8. But for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. This is a clear reference to God's righteous judgment. Jesus actually comments on this, this verse in Luke chapter 20, verse 18. Listen to what Jesus says. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But whomever it falls on, it will scatter him like dust. So why do the unbelievers stumble? Someone tell me from the text. Why do the unbelievers stumble? Someone tell me. What does it say? They would not believe. And anytime we talk about believe, the word believe in here, it's not mental assent. It's not just, oh, I, I acquiesce to, those, to that dogma. That's not the way the Bible uses the word belief. It's not mental assent. It's believing in such a way that your life is changed. It's believing in such a way that you love Christ and you follow Christ, you obey Christ, you abandon yourself to Christ. That's what the Bible means when it talks about believing. So those who do not believe or who disbelieve, they stumble on this stone. The NAS says, my version, the one I, I love, which is the most literal from the original languages, it says, to this doom they were appointed. The ESV says, they stumbled by disobedience as they were destined to. Now, we must rightly divide the Word of God here lest we slander Him. Because I have people ask me on texts like this, Romans 9.22, that really difficult text, people will come to me and say, well, it sounds like God is predestining people to hell. Listen, the Bible is clear. The Bible teaches predestination. God predestinates the elect to salvation. That's clear. That's all over the New Testament. We get that. But the Bible does not teach double predestination. The Bible does not teach that God predestines anyone to hell. The Bible does not teach that. I want to make sure you understand it. The Bible does not teach that. If a man lands in hell, it's right here in verse 8. Why? He disbelieves. That's why. God does not predestine anyone to hell. If a man lands in hell, it's because he has rejected the cornerstone. The precious cornerstone. The Bible says here, verse 7, they disbelieve. Verse 8, they are disobedient. That's why a man or woman will land in hell. I think MacArthur says it very well. John MacArthur, he says, these are not appointed by God to disobedience and unbelief. That's not the meaning of the text. Rather, these were appointed to doom because of their disobedience and Unbelief. Whereas Christians put their hope in the chief cornerstone and build their lives upon Him, the unbeliever has rejected the chief cornerstone and he builds his life on something else. can be 10,001 things. On the love for myself, on my money, on my career, on pleasure, uh, even on religion. 
even on family. We can, we can misappropriate or misplace our affections on anything in this world to the degree that we have indeed slandered God. We have disbelieved and we have been disobedient. So, so back to George MacDonald's parable about the Christian believing, uh, being like a living house. Do you see why God never refurb, does a refurb job on His children? Do you see why it's always a raise and it's always a rebuild? It's because He's always going to get us down to the foundation. And He's going to put in that new cornerstone. His name is Jesus. So it's, it's, it's partly a deconstruction and partly a reconstruction. This is what God is doing in our lives. He calls it sanctification. God says, since you've been spiritually birthed by My invincible, imperishable, miracle-working, life-creating Word, verse 23 of chapter 1, therefore... Chapter 2, verse 1, grow in sanctification. Grow up in sanctification. Therefore, verse 2, grow up into spiritual maturity. Therefore, verse 5, grow up and be My priests in the world. This is what God's calling us to tonight, beloved. Grow up. You claim to be a Christian? Be one. You know, if you're not going to be one, just go do something else. Just go do something else. The world doesn't need another person who says they're a Christian, but they're not. The world's seen too much of that. The world thinks we're a joke anyway. Because people say they're a Christian, oh, and then they just do whatever the world does. Well, what difference does it make to be a Christian? The world is full of that, beloved. We're bringing disgrace upon the name of Christ to say we're a Christian and then live like the world. This is why God is saying to us, be built up, verse 5. You're a living stone. Being built up, you're supposed to be my priests. You're supposed to be my priests in the world. And I always love the economy of words in Scripture, and I always love how understated it is. God says, all who believe and obey, they shall not be disappointed. Amen? Tomorrow morning if you wake up and you give yourself anew and afresh to Christ Jesus and you begin to live for Him in a new way, in a way maybe you never have before, in a more bold way, it may not necessarily be easy in the near term, but you will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. Tonight, there it is. We're, we're going to celebrate communion. And uh, we have open communion here. All who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and followed Him in believer's baptism, you are welcome to partake of the table. Uh, Paul lovingly um, warns the Corinthians, and I lovingly warn you, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Don't come to the table with, with sin in your heart, unrepentant sin. Don't come to the table in some ritualistic way. Don't come to the table in some heart-dead, brain-dead way. You come to the table because you love Him. You come to the table because your heart is full of joy. You come to the table because you've been forgiven. You come to the table because you need to worship Him and you need to remember this awesome thing He's done. That's why we need to come to the table. Do not come to the table in a half-hearted way. So the way we do this is Aratio will come and play a piece of music three or four minutes long. You prepare your heart to come and partake uh, during that music.
while the music's going on, go up, take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat. After the music, I'll read a text, and then we will partake of the elements at that time. Okay?